And just to say, at the end of this, um, the Dangor Education has provided wine, <laughs> um, which is going to be on the uh, a terrace outside the restaurant, yeah, which is on the fifth floor of the adjoining building. I'll, I'll provide a guide as to how to get there for those of you who would like to come to that. It would be nice to see everybody. Anyway, so this is this um, space um, we've set aside for discussion of what we've been listening to today. Though much of it will be taken up with contributions from our three panelists here, who I will introduce. Um, but I do hope it'll be possible also for people who've been trying to absorb so much as there's been in the six papers and the two responses that we've had. I kind of thinking them as eight papers really, because the responses were so full of of new ideas in them. Um, so maybe by by the end of uh, hearing the panellists' thoughts, we can. other people will also have things that they would like to contribute to it. Anyway, delighted again to have um, all three here. In the order we're going to go, first with Lindsay Stonebridge. Lindsay is Professor of Modern Literature and History at the University of East Anglia, just about to take up a new post in Birmingham in the autumn, mm -hmm. yeah? Professor of everything you've always wanted to be. Yeah. yeah. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so, those of you who are aspiring to be treated decently in the university system, Lindsay was given a job where they said, what would you like to be professor of, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, she writes on 20th century literature and history, human rights, refugee studies, teaches on, on history of human rights. In fact, human rights has been, in one way or another, has been the focus of, of much of her humanities and literary work over a long period of time. And she's published widely on a huge range of topics. Um, refugees, Hannah Arendt, modernism, writing after Nuremberg, trauma, and psychoanalysis, um, your book from the 90s, The Destructive Element, is the one that I refer to a great deal and get my students to read, which was, which was really on modernism, Klein, um, destructiveness. Um, and then, so, so Lindsay will go first and talk for 10 to 15 minutes on what she's been thinking about in response to what she's been listening to. And then Anna Rowlands, um, who's the St Hilda Associate Professor of Catholic Social Thought and Practice in the Department of Theology and Religion at the University of Durham. She's a political theologian and expert on Catholic social teaching with special interests in the work of Hannah Arendt and Gillian Rose. Um, and she works um, on theology and migration in particular. She had a book called Catholic Social Teaching, A Guide for the Perplexed, which is a lovely, mix, even, a lovely mixed religion title. Isn't it? <laughs> it's also not finished. But. It's not finished. Yeah. Right, and, and um, also you've got the, the reader in political theology, is that one out? Um, it's all finished with the publisher, so very soon in the next few months. Yeah. Okay, and her, her current AHRC, SRC, Global Challenges Funded Research, the Refugee Host Project focuses on forced displacement in the Middle East and examines the role that faith and faith-based organisations play in local responses to displacement. And then finally, uh, Vina Das will speak again, and I, I think everybody was here when I introduced her earlier, so um, I won't do that again other than to say that she's very much our honoured guest here, and to remind you that she's giving a public lecture at 6 o'clock on Wednesday over in the Claw Lecture Theatre opposite. But, Lindsay, if you would like Thanks. to start us off. Thank you. Stephen, and, and thank you so much for the invitation. Um, it's quite rare, um, but a real privilege, to sit down at the end of the academic year and have a day of good faith, openness, and generosity. And I, uh, well, you know, when you know that what we do is, is good, 
and it's good to be you together. You were listening to Sylvia then, who said, well, should we talk about misery and dystopia? Well, I'm going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> this is my softening you up. <laughs> um, so I'm very, very grateful. I want to make sort of three points, one about history, one about politics, and one about ethics and politics. And as um, I was listening to the papers today, I've had not three neighbours, sort of three guests who've overstayed their welcome in my life, I think. One's Freud, one's Hobbes, and one's Arendt. Maybe Arendt hasn't stayed her welcome yet. Um, first point about history, the text that I'm sure a lot of us, and indeed Stephen alluded um, to it at the beginning, that's been playing um, in my mind as I was reading the papers and listening again today was Freud's comment about love thy neighbour in civilization as discontent. Um, where he says, a bit like Arendt does, um, as you pointed out, <laughs> that it's impossible. It's impossible to fulfil. And the reason that Freud thinks it's impossible to fulfil is because of desire. I mean, it's, what, what love thy neighbour tells us is how much we want to eat him, basically. Freud's point is sort of um, man is wolf to man, the, uh, homo homini lupus. Um, Freud says, you know, the reason we, we have to, we have this, the commandment to love thy neighbour is because of aggressive desire. And um, as I was listening to the papers today, I was thinking that when what Freud was describing there was the kind of psychopathology of modern secular European civilization, And he was also marking the end of that structure, is marking the point where that broke down. This is 32. And the more I listened today, the more I thought we're actually way into the shadows of that breakdown now. Of that, that concept of um, neighbourliness and in kind of the desire and the aggression that goes with it, perhaps. And the papers today, I think, all spoke to that, the aftermath or after living of that moment. Um, I was very struck um, in about Ruth's, Ruth's um, paper when she was talking about what it means when we're talking about neighbourliness today. We're living in a Europe that's marked by its, its murderous history to its nearest neighbours, and you're always walking through that history. It was again, it was in David's paper and um, in Elena's um, too, that you, you, you can never get rid of the, that, that past. On the one hand, murderous um, psychopathology of the modern nation state and the way that trauma um, links. And I was also thinking in response to Ben's paper, some, in some ways, and this is a kind of crass Freudian point, but I think it's got some resonance, that the kind of ethical togetherness that protests too much, the banality of conviviality, seems like a reaction formation to that rather grubbier um, psychopathology is being played out today. It's, it's much too nice for any Freudian to take at face value um, at all. And that kind of the, puts me on to my second point. I mean, if you, if you start with that passage from Freud, you you, you end up, well, you do if you're me, you always hear Hobbes, who also had his own things to say about love thy neighbour as you should love thyself, and man is wolf to man. Um, and this is a way of raising again the question of politics and the nation-state that's been haunting us, I think, um, um, throughout our discussions today, and haunting our ethical discussions. And Hobbes, some of you will remember, will say that both sayings, love thy neighbour as you love yourself, and man is a wolf to man, are true. And he said the first is true to love thy neighbour is if we compare citizens among ourselves, and the second is if we compare cities. So on the one hand, he's talking about kind of communities and citizenship. And on the other hand, he's talking about the state um, and what the state does. And again, that came through very strongly, I think, in Elena's paper, but also very, very well made, I think, in Ben's paper, 
that the state is always there determining the points, of, you know, the, the kind of forms that citizenship and neighbourliness can take, um, particularly within uh, within the modern context. And I wanted at this point to go back to Stephen's incisive question at the beginning um, um, of the day about why we made why we made this move from the other in the 80s through the stranger in the 90s getting ever closer to talk about neighbourliness, the neighbour today. And my question is perhaps we start to talk about the neighbour and neighbourliness when political sovereignty is failing in various ways. That's when the question of the neighbour becomes important. When political sovereignties go to the bad, i.e. they fail in the way that Ben described as being post-Westphalian. Um, so the failing nation state, but also when they fail, i.e. when they become nasty, when they become racist, when they become tyrannical, and when they don't bother to disguise their nastiness, which is pretty much the now that we're living in. Um, and I think it's very tempting, and um, um, you know, I think you raise this, this too, um, at that point to, to sort of hone in on the ethical as a response to bad politics, but I think what um, today has taught me is we need to keep the political and the ethical intention when we're talking about that the failure of certain types of political sovereignty because what you then have is the emergence of other non-nation state sovereignties which we touched at again at the end um, whether it's Badawi camp or Calais or your community or somewhere where something else is happening something else is being invented which brings me back to my my final point which is again to keep the ethic the ethical intention with the political um, so that actually the last sort of four or five years there's a quote from Arendt that's been haunting me and it's a very weird um, passage and it's in the end of her famous um, chapter on the decline of the nation state and the end of the rights of man and on the one hand in this passage she's describing what she calls dark background of difference so she's saying what's going to happen is more and more people are going to end up in this new globalised world living in spaces of rightlessness um, without legal or political representation. And she called it the dark background of difference. Now, on the one hand, being a rent, she's utterly wedded to the political realm and the realm of visibility and sort of not having any dark background anywhere. Um, she also says, we'll, we'll perceive this as threatening, this is a threat. And there's a kind of language of colonialism and racism she can't quite control herself in these closing passages. But then, in the middle of describing, I'll read you this passage, um, in the middle of describing the dark background of difference, there's a really odd moment where she, where I think, I love Bina's point about there's these flights of fantasy that emerge in these discussions, that something happens. And she suddenly evokes um, Augustine, um, sort of an ethics in the, in the middle of this dark background of difference. But it's not the Augustine who loves his neighbour. It's the Augustine who just says, I want you to be. It's just the Augustine who's wants you to exist next to one another. So I'll just read it, then I'll shut. And she says, this is Arendt, the human being who has lost his place in a community, his political status in the struggle of his time, and the legal personality which makes his actions and part of destiny as a consistent whole, is left with those qualities which usually become articulate only in the sphere of private life and remain unqualified mere existence in all matters of public concern. So that's typical Arendt. So it's all private, it's all mere existence, it's all the things we don't 
usually associate with the political, and that's where refugees, she was still a refugee when she wrote this passage, this is 1949 when she first wrote this. Um, the rightless, the disenfranchised, the people who fall out, colonial um, subjects. That's the, the usual harangue. Then she says, this mere existence, that is, all that which is mysteriously, and this is Heidegger coming back, her Heidegger coming back, is mysteriously given us by birth and includes the shapes of our bodies and the talents of our minds, can be adequately dealt with only by the unpredictable hazards of friendship and sense and sympathy. So it's, it's unpredictable hazards of friendship and sympathy. There's no, no commandment there. It's unpredictable. It's a hazard. It's a risk. Um, Ruth, Ruth and her risks. Um, yeah. um, or, and then she says, by the great and incalculable grace of love, which says with Augustine, I want you to be, without being able to give any particular reason for such a supreme and unsurpassable affirmation. So there's no logic there. There's no afterlife. It's like, this is the bit where she's following through her thesis on Augustine. And then she stops and she doesn't say anything else. And I spent the last five years going, what did you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Where? Can we have some, you know? And, and it, when it does, it comes back in several places in the human condition, but she's always, you know, she, it's like she doesn't want to make it in too much of a thing in case she spoils it. Um, and she's also very much wedded to the politics. But what I like about that is there's this ethical moment of a flight of fantasy in the middle of politics, in the middle of her version of politics, but also in the version of the lived politics. She's a refugee when she's writing that, she's trying to theorize. I'm going back to Lena's point about how you, when you ask for definitions, you get definitions, her, her, her existence. Um, so, and I think that does go back to that, also the Heidegger mechanic that you were talking about that's more equivocal. Um, so what I'm going to take away is that kind of affirmation of a possible ethics, but always within a slightly more difficult and compromised political now. Those are my three points. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to do something um, which is a little bit like what Lindsay's done, which is to pick up on some of the themes of the day. But I also want to tie them back into some of my own fieldwork um, context as well. So I'm just going to do a brief introduction that helps situate some of that and then pull out themes um, from the day and the papers that we've heard and throw out some questions. So it won't surprise you to hear me say that I think migration is a key context for thinking about questions of neighbourliness and of the turn towards what Stephen and Ruth call the anxious politics um, in their introductory paper. And in my own work, I've been looking at migration as an experience of both mobility and immobility, including the manufacture of immobility or stockness. And I'm interested in asking what such contexts, where particularly immobility and mobility being paradoxical uh, realities at the same time, mean for what we might want to say about neighbourliness, particularly when viewed theologically. And I'm drawing on two particular pieces of fieldwork in particular um, that I want to say something about briefly um, to connect with some of the themes that we've been touching on. The first is a piece of work I've been doing in the East End of London with the Jesuit Refugee Service looking at asylum seeker experiences of enforced destitution and immigration detention. And I've been looking at the way in which um, asylum seekers experience um, hostile environment policies, the way in which they experience uh, particularly the deprivation of work and housing. And I've been looking particularly at their experience of hosting schemes, of street homelessness, of various informal house, uh, hosting arrangements, and also their experience of um, night bus living in London. 
The second project, which is rather different, um, involves spending time on an estate called the Cowgate Estate in the west end of Newcastle, um, and it is largely historically a white working class area of the city, um, although recently has had a group of um, a, a population of asylum seekers come to live on the estate. And what's interesting about that work is that neighbourliness is key to the structure of how that community understands itself. It trades on a social capital of belonging and neighbourliness in a very different way. So I'm drawing on both of those in what I want to say um, about the everyday and neighbourliness. So the idea of the neighbour and neighbourliness does not necessarily, but often does invoke the idea of being placed. Today we've talked about this, neighbourliness, as a shared domain, Stephen's phrase. David talked about neighbourhood in Bosnia as a space that is pragmatic, an agonistic space of social proximity, the possibility that comes from placeness, the space in which the life of the other is engaged, David. And we might add Aaron's sense of the ethical space as the interest, that which lies between, the space structured by our stories, made up of plural narratives of ethical selfhood and community living in both their light and their darkness, as Anna, Ruth and Vina have both suggested in different ways. I'm wondering at this point in the day how we might want to scrutinise this further. What's most resonant in these definitions and understandings? What seems to us still to be missing? And what now seems more problematic than we first thought? What we've talked about is not just the presence of competing or colliding narratives of belonging and neighbourliness, representing different political theologies of ethical action and public space held by individuals, we have talked about that, but we've also noted the newly politicised context for even having the conversations that we've been having today, academic and everyday, and I think that's equally important that they're politicised in their everyday form as well as being politicised in their academic form, that the very act of talking about our lives together as neighbours is part of an increasingly significant, what I would call, political theology of our times, a heightened political value in having the conversation at all. So our research is not, in multiple senses, outside of that, but functions within it, and there are multiple layers to the political theologies in the plural that we might need to discern, operative and normative. So I'm interested in asking, what does it do to our discussions to take as context places where there is an active frustration of neighbour relations? So we've talked about neighbour relations as contexts of possibility, we've talked about um, them as places where there's opportunity and possibility, but what happens when we look at spaces in which being a neighbour is something which is actively frustrated. So one of the things that interested me in my conversations with um, asylum seekers at the Jesuit Refugee Service was that they did not use consciously to describe their own experience neighbourliness or neighbour language at all. They used kinship language very strongly and very deliberately, but not neighbour-related language. And I think myself that one of the reasons why neighbour language was not used is that they're living through um, a moment in the system where the possibility of being neighbourly is actively deprived. So it's the role of the state, or the state has taken upon itself a role, to frustrate the very possibility of that language being meaningful and resonant. So there's a use of other language that takes that place. I can't remember whose paper it was um, who talked, maybe it was 
read, I might be remembering this wrongly because it's the written version of it, who talked about, no, I think it was David's actually, of kinship relations not being the language, but rather a pragmatic language around social proximity and placeness. Well, I'm interested in what happens when it's not possible for that quite rightly described agonistic language to be the thing that you reach for most readily because it's the very thing which is um, deprived. And I'm thinking particularly of those who are forced to live in a constant, a constant pattern of um, sort of staged mobility. So if you cannot, if you do not know where you will sleep that night, if you do not know where you'll sleep the next week, if you've got no means of sustaining yourself and you're reliant constantly either on public spaces, which are heavily policed, or you're reliant on informal, uh, abusive or non-abusive um, uh, arrangements, then it becomes very difficult to imagine what the language of the neighbour means. So on the one hand, we're told um, that people are meant to integrate and not live parallel lives, and yet this is a population um, who are particularly vulnerable because um, precisely they are forced into a condition of living parallel lives. The very thing the state craves is the very thing the state ensures is not possible um, in that context. So I'm interested in how we think about what it means to be neighbourly in that setting. Now what's interesting, and this ties in I think with um, Ben's really helpful language about micro-publics, one of the ways in which I think there is resistance amongst um, the asylum seeker population I was working with to precisely the, those practices of the state is to invent micro-publics where it becomes possible to uh, reinstate some of that which the state um, deprives people of. And I think that happens in a number of ways. One is through the use of public buildings. So in other words, you create proximity by entering spaces which are free. So for example, public libraries become a really important place for people who are um, destitute in the asylum system. And also through collaboration with other civic actors who are interested in co-creating spaces where it becomes possible to express agency and kinship. One of the really interesting things that was said to me again and again in my uh, research was um, we know which day centres we want to go to and which day centres we don't want to go to. And the ones that we want to go to are the ones where the staff eat their food with us, where we're, we're spoken to with a sense of dignity and where we're given direct agency and control over the way in which we spend our time, so those which have least regulation and least structure around them. So it interests me that there are ways of creating those possibilities Two very quick um, references to the more theological themes that came up in that setting, which I think, again, are resonant for us. So when I asked people what they were being deprived of, and this relates also to the question of, end, which I think we were ending with David before, how do we end up with a non-binary anthropology of the good, anthropology of suffering? Um, I think actually by listening attentively through fieldwork to the way, the metaphysics of practice that emerge from the way in which people describe their own lives, where it's perfectly clear, I think in many instances, that there's a sense that people know what they're being deprived of and the good to which they aspire and there's ways in which you can therefore connect um, those two. When you ask um, asylum seekers in the JRS context what, uh, what they feel they are being deprived of or what's being disordered, um, two very clear themes emerged. One was around time and the disordering of time that the current asylum system uh, actively um, generates the disordering of temporality of time. And the second is that it disorders um, a sort of theological with a small t relationship to promise, to possibility. So the first is about not being able to structure your time, not understanding duration. Uh, for example, detention without a time limit means that you count your days up, not your days down, which completely uh, reorientates your relationship to the trauma of incarceration. Um, 
the theme around promise and the deprivation of promise was really about the eroding of um, capacity and skill. So I was told over and over again, this time last year I could still do X or Y, now I'm no longer capable of that. I wonder if I'll ever be capable of that again. But what, what was interesting to me was that people were able to very articulately describe, uh, as one person put it, the way in which I am degrading in time. Um, at the same time, they were also able to explain to me how they were reinscribing those practices using strongly theological narratives. I did not ask any, even though I'm a theologian, I asked no questions about religion or theology in my fieldwork, and yet again and again, there was probably a balance of about 70% Christian to probably 30% other religion, predominantly Muslim, um, only one person with no religious background. Um, people described to me the ways in which, and this touches on um, some of Ruth's material, the ways in which the narratives of scripture, particularly the Old Testament, offered um, imaginative spaces for reimagining both of those themes of promise and time. So the, the key passage that came up again and again was Jeremiah 29. Um, God has a plan, it's a good plan, but it's a plan which has unpredictable ends, <laughs> I was told repeatedly. The ending's unpredictable, we don't know the ending. But that sense in which it was possible to look at key biblical characters and themes, largely but not exclusively Old Testament, where it was New Testament, it was more Pauline, and draw from those a reimagined horizon around promise and time. Um, so those kind of narratives around how we think of neighbourliness in that context, I think, are important. The final point on detention, and this for me was a really interesting reinscription of neighbour language, probably the closest bit that we got to overt neighbour language um, in the interviews, was people describing the way in which immigration detention is experienced as a context, quote, of the total denial of love. I experienced detention as the total denial of love. And yet again... The flip side of that, so very clear articulation of that which is being deprived of, but a, re a, a, a reinscription of those practices of neighbour love in two key ways. One of which is the ministering of one detainee to another detainee, which repeatedly I was told again and again, um, well, what I found myself doing was I learned how to be somebody who could support other people. I learned that I had skills that I didn't know I had and they would describe the way in which they'd offered pastoral care to others. In several instances, that included um, saving the lives of other detainees. So three of my interviewees had, had directly saved the life of, a, of another detainee. One who'd caught a body, uh, somebody who's trying to hang themselves, um, and two others who'd prevented overdoses. So I think there's a really interesting way in which power is being reinscribed, even in a context of total, um, as described, denial of love. Um, the final thing to say on that is, and I found this really quite affecting, um, one interviewee told me that the thing that, he, that most distressed him about immigration detention was that before he was detained, and he was first detained when he was 18 and last detained when he was 21, and he's now 22, um, he'd been somebody who was naturally empathetic. Neighbour love was something that was really important to him. Um, but what the thing that he found that immigration detention had deprived him of was a capacity for empathy with other people. And that was the thing that had most distressed him um, after his release from detention, that he found that he no longer had um, what he felt before had been a naturally empathetic connection with other people. And he put that down to um, the, the kind of mental trauma um, of being detained. Two quick things, because otherwise I'm going to be vastly over time. There are other things I want to say about Calgate, but I won't, I won't say them. Um, I think one of the really interesting themes that's come up today is the way we think about civic spaces. 
And this is one of the things I perhaps I don't think had anticipated um, in advance. So it's a genuine point of kind of resonance and learning. I think the papers today reveal the extent to which thinking about neighbourliness involves not the dissolution of power into law. So this, this ties in with Lindsay's point about ethics and, and politics. Um, so it reveals not the dissolution of power into love, but the articulation of complex social sovereignties. So Lindsay's pointing out, I think rightly, that there's this moment where political sovereignties are both failing and reasserting themselves at the same time. And then suddenly we want to talk about the neighbour and we want to reinvest in this ethical space. But I think what's interesting is this, this reinvented ethical space that we're talking about, which is civic, which is between people and between traditions, also involves asserting sovereignties. Not the sovereignties of the state, but it still trades on narratives of social sovereignty. In other words, it still includes the idea that we set boundaries, that we narrate power, that we practice judgment and responsibility in neighbourhoods and through narratives of neighbourliness. Vina raised sharp questions. Who can never be my neighbour when I construe power or truth this way? How do we speak of and deal with the darkness that emerges in our neighbour accounts or practices? Liberal ideas, we've repeated again and again today, are far from devoid of these challenges. Liberal accounts of pluralism can foreclose and absolutize in their teleologies too. They can also be neo-communitarian in both helpful and unhelpful ways that are often missed because it is our dominant secular Christian slash political theology. The ambivalence of neighborhood of neighbourliness, rather, runs through the whole of today. And that needs to be heard in its silence, its gesture, and its speech through ethnography. As Lindsay says, keeping our awareness that the ethical is always in tension with the political. And for me, based on my own fieldwork, I would add, the political is almost always still theological. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, I'm just catch up. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Vina. Um, and thank you for inviting me again to, to share some thoughts. I, I have to say, just listening um, to the papers this morning, um, jet lagged though I am, was, um, it really had thoughts whirring in my mind. And so I'm going to share some of those thoughts. These were very, very interesting and very provocative. Um, so, the first thought that I have is, um, is this question, you could have these two different ways of thinking, uh, if not about neighborhood, then about proximity. So one really, um, uh, what is it that I think is of my world, right? Um, you know, I think of the fact that Coates uh, uh, is an author I like very much. And when he's saying in Waiting for the Barbarians that the magistrate had never known that empire included something like torture, uh, right? It's, it's something that actually haunts me to think that uh, I do live in qualities within which torture is routinely committed, right? I, I can't quite say, but I've never done it. I actually don't even know anyone. I know people who've been imprisoned, but I don't know anybody 
Um, well, I do know one girl who was tortured, not in the state kind of system, but I will talk about that in my paper, right? Um, and I'm kind of very moved by Cora Diamond's um, notion that in a way, there's nothing like the human condition which is given, because we don't know the limits of the human. But that what's at stake in uh, relating to each other um, is the fact that you know, even in a passing glance, you might recognize me as human, or you might think, you, you might convey to me that I'm just a circumstance yeah, in your life, right? And so it seemed to me on listening to the morning papers um, that my, it might be that one of the interesting questions um, is that uh, I said in the comments that there is this interesting question of, um, you know, whether there are two different kinds of moral worlds in which, um, in in which the um, orthodox uh, Jewish understanding of what it is to be in proximity uh, is different from the understanding of the other members of the the, the Christian inhabitants of the same neighborhood. Um, just taking that thought further, it seemed to me quite an interesting question uh, that when this uh, young boy comes, you know, I, I can just picture it, you know, he's probably nervous, he's going to their house, mommy has said go and give this gift to them. Right, so he's standing at the door and he doesn't know what will happen and I can imagine he's just handling the gift and running back. I mean, I've had this with my children sometimes when they were very little. They said, go and, you know, do this, and they would, like, run and go there and come back, right? But there's something interesting in the, in the stories that follow from that, which is that you could ask whether in these kinds of interactions, is there a kind of question of whether um, the humanity of the other person is being recognized, mm -hmm. even if they are not part of one's own. And in fact, particularly in face of the fact that they are not part of my own culture. And that seems to me would shift the question somewhat from saying, why don't they all become novel and come and, you know, uh, participate in our in our festivities to the question of whether these are ways of recognizing um, the, um, I don't mean to say common humanity, just that are, are these recognitions to the, to the fact that there is a um, human community from which you have not been exiled, so to say. And you know, if one knows um, cases where you know, one is completely exiled from the human community, then one knows what the Uh, so it seems to me that, in a way, this, the ethnographies probably also uh, need to think more about these kinds of uh, very subtle uh, interactions, movements, which happen, which cannot be necessarily worldwide. That is, nobody is going to be able to say in an interview uh, that, you know, really what happened was that I recognized you as a human, but everything that they're doing is showing that. 
So it, it seemed to me that that was one really interesting set of questions that arose for me uh, in relation to the larger question I've been pursuing, which is that I think anthropologists do a great job in showing that there are cultural differences. But uh, even our forms of evaluation of things like research now, um, you know, end up by expelling the human. I mean, in the sense, I, I have a friend who submitted a um, research proposal in which she was going to examine um, the impact of torture on, so this is in, in Denmark <coughs> where they are, these are people who've been treated for torture, right? She wanted to examine whether the impact of torture that happens on the person you know, does it, in what kind of way does it have an impact on the family? And the reviewer said, but this person is assuming that torture has an impact not only on the person but also on the family, but she has not set up any research methodology to actually show whether this happens or this does not happen. <laughs> and I thought, you know, you must be someone who doesn't <laughs> recognize the human to be able to write a comment of this character, yeah. right? So, and, and, I, and I can give you other examples which are more benign of the sort in which, you know, early ethnographies, you know, when you read what they think that these human beings, these people were, like Moss saying that, you know, the, in these societies, the every person, the average person is every person. And you feel like, no, this is your theory of typified experience which makes you actually say something of that kind. Uh, so I think that this question of the, um, of the human is a very compelling question, but there's no straightforward route through which we can actually uh, simply kind of extract it and say there is something called the human condition. And so you know, so we can I can I can give you more examples of how um, uh, you know how quickly this question of the human condition is actually evoked and expanded in some ways. But if we were to get rid of the notion that we know that there is something called and yet that there are ways in which this issue really of, uh, you know, how do you recognize the human? Sometimes impersonally, um, in Rupa um, uh, Singh's book on, um, I forget the title now, um, but, but he's describing the case of a, you know, in the same proximity of the sort in which uh, this woman who's a bonded laborer or has been a bonded laborer, feed herself as part of the political and, you know, is in very kind of antagonistic relationship with the previous landlords. Um, but, the, but, you know, the, the god of this particular landlord community begins to come and possess her. So they have to come to her. Mm in some ways because God doesn't recognize these kind of differences, right? And so they end up by, you know, her having to perform the rituals because she's not the agent of her own action. And yet there's something very interesting in the manner in which these kinds of, uh, you know, these, these kinds of, um, um, you know, what Foucault calls uh, thunderbolt truth, not the sky truth, but the thunderbolt truth actually suddenly gestures would break uh, within um, a kind of narrative and which you cannot 
Uh, I mean, I've tried very hard to escape from the tyranny of definitions, but I recognize that Jonathan is sitting here, so I have to. You're probably going to ask me what's the definition of that, and I'm going to be unable to give, give that. Uh, but what I'm arguing is that there is something to be able to say, don't necessarily define it at the start, track in a certain sense, and then maybe one can show something, you know, which, which will um, take up this question. Um, and that would really require one to repose the question, which then becomes not, why are these people so, um, uh, you know, so insular that they don't come and talk to us? so on, but that what is our neediness in this, that we require them to perform this, mm -hmm. um, you know, togetherness or vulnerability or whatever. And that was one thought that I had was um, how greedy liberal subjectivity <laughs> can be in relationship to this constant affirmation of saying, you know, you, know, you really are good guys, we would really like to hang out with you, um, and, and so on. So what would it mean to think about distance in, you know, in, as part of the intimacy? Um, the second um, issue that I had was, um, uh, you know, because I work in the kinds of neighborhoods where, um, you, you know, you just have enormous uh, um, ways, enormous generosity, but also enormous violence, which completely these are places of very serious segregation, very serious poverty. Um, and it seems very interesting to me that, um, that in some ways, um, how to conceptualize these kinds of neighborhoods is, um, you know, is somehow driven away when we assume that the neighborhood is a place where houses have doors, uh, you know, uh, people can walk about those places. Uh, and I'll give you two examples of both this generosity and violence. When I moved from Delhi to uh, Baltimore, I thought that to get to know Baltimore, I should really try and, you know, do some research on the African-American communities. <laughs> and, 